Judges 2. Together on page, <clears throat> excuse me, Who's got it? You've all got there first of you. Judges 2, page. Thank you, Rosemary. 232. Did you ever play assembly at school? Did you ever play Bible golf where you set yourself a par score and you've got to try and find the reading in that par? This will be about par 6 or 7 because it's the golf open. I thought we'd indulge. So you you say, right, I've got to find it in 6 or 7 turns. I've just had a nightmare there. Way over par for Judges 2. Page 232. Mind you, every now and then you get a hole in one. You just turn it up and it's there. And you think, oh. Yep, school assemblies were that dull. Uh, I'm going to read. I don't think I'll read the whole chapter. Let me just read from, I'm going to read from verse 1 of chapter 2. The angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim and said, I brought you up out of Egypt and led you into the land that I swore to give your ancestors. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall not make a covenant with the people of this land, but you shall break down their altars. Yet you have disobeyed me. Why have you done this? And I have also said, I will not drive them out before you. They will become traps for you, and their gods will become snares to you. When the angel of the Lord had spoken these things to the Israelites, the people wept aloud, and they called that place Bochim. There they offered sacrifices to the Lord. After Joshua had dismissed the Israelites, they went to take possession of the land, each to their own inheritance. The people served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and of the elders who outlived him and who had seen all the great things the Lord had done for Israel. Joshua, son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 and they buried him in the land of his inheritance at Timnah-Heres in the hill country of Ephraim north of Mount Gash. After that whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors, another generation grew up who neither knew the Lord nor what he'd done for Israel. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. They forsook the Lord, the God of their ancestors, who'd brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshipped various gods of the peoples around them, They aroused the Lord's anger because they forsook him and served Baal and the Ashtoreth. In his anger against Israel, the Lord gave them into the hands of raiders who plundered them. He sold them into the hands of their enemies all around, whom they were no longer able to resist. Whenever Israel went out to fight, the hand of the Lord was against them to defeat them, just as he had sworn to them. They were in great distress. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, please uh, teach us. Your word, uh, written so long ago, is alive and active. And by your spirit, you speak to us today. We, we dare to trust that, to believe that. We ask you now, please, to guide and admonish, to teach and sustain us. We ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen.
we are just concluding our summer series with this little series on idolatry, looking at idolatry in scripture. We uh, last week looked at the fact that uh, idolatry is the practice of allowing something or someone else to take God's place in our hearts. It's when we give undue worthship to something or someone other than God for whom we were created to worship, to glorify. Idols are things that we make. The first commandment, do not make an idol or an image. Sorry, second commandment, worship the Lord God alone. And then secondly, don't make an idol. Idols were things that were made of their human construction and uh, ironically made by us what they end up doing is we give them status and worth. We, in a sense, we empower them when we idolize them. They demean and dehumanize us. They become, as the prophets, particularly Isaiah, as we looked last week, they become a burden to us. They weary us. They reduce us. We become what we worship. Worship something made of wood and we become wooden, lifeless, And here we are in the book of Judges. Judges is basically, if you picture a cycle, the book of Judges basically describes a cycle. The people of God going on and on, over and over this cycle of faith in God. We've picked up a little mini cycle in the reading that we had here. Faith in God, but then a reminder in some way, shape or form of how they have drifted away from him. Their apostasy, their lack of faith. They go and worship other gods and hear the angel in the start of chapter 2, reminding them of their disobedience. They repent. There's a fresh commitment, new sacrifice. There's blessing for a while, all through the lifetime of Joshua. And then another generation, and the cycle repeats. Disaster and distress, followed by repentance and restoration. I asked the question at the top of last week, do you find that kind of cycle going on in, in, in your life? Do, do, you, do you find there's almost like a sort of glass ceiling in terms of your growth and development and understanding and love of God through Christ by his spirit? Do you find from time to time an impotence, a lack of power in the way in which you live, in the way in which we seek to witness as we are uh, faced with trial and temptation does, does the Christian faith seem to lack substance in your life from time to time? I, it does with me. I regularly have these kind of audits in my own life. Could it be, as I asked of myself, could it be that I, I'm actually worshipping idols far more than I'd like to think? That I'm idolatrous? The question that the book of Judges primarily puts to us as we read of Israel through the time of the judges is, is who will you worship? Who will you commit to? Who will you sacrifice to? Who will you serve? Is it the foreign gods of the neighboring peoples around you? Or is it Yahweh, the one true living God? Verse 10, I just want to dig into a few verses here and uh, look at them in a little bit of detail. 
This is when Joshua and his generation have died. And look how we're told here. After that whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he'd done for Israel. Here is a people who were ignorant of God's word and ignorant of God's works. And what happens when a people become, for a little while, just forgetful, negligent, or ignorant of God's word and God's works, of what he said and of what he's done? Distance between God and the people that he's made creeps in. And in that distance, inevitably in the human heart, percolates up insecurity. Picture it like this. You're swimming in the sea. You're, you're within your depth. You're quite near the shore. So even though there are those Coast Guard signs warning you of rip tides and currents, it's okay. You're near to safety. You're near to security. But the longer you drift, the, the bigger distance that you create between yourself and the shore, the more you expose yourself to the, to the currents and the tides that swirl around. They're unseen. I mean, the sea just looks perfectly idyllic and wavy and nice. But underneath are the currents that are tearing and drawing at you. And the further away you are from the shore and the further away from safety and security, the more you're prone to the power of the tides and the currents. That's what happened to the people of Israel as distance crept in from them and the security of their identity in God. Now what happens in that, in that vacuum that's created? Worship abhors a vacuum. It's not a physical law, it's a spiritual law. Worship abhors a vacuum. And to borrow from G.K. Chesterton and just to change his quotation slightly, if human beings forsake worshipping the one true living God, they don't worship no God, they worship any God. Do you remember last week I was talking about the fact that we were made with a magnet inside. That magnet is created in us to, to be drawn, to be magnetized to something or someone. Ultimately, the greatest source of our worship that we're drawn to is God. But if we forsake God, we'll be drawn who knows where. A myriad of options. God's small g. Idolatry. So we shouldn't be surprised to learn in verse 11. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. That's just a consequence of the fact in 11b, they served the Baals. They served the Baals. This is the name of the god or gods of the neighboring peoples, the Canaanites in whose land they'd recently come to reside. Notice that serve. Baal is the name, it means Lord. And the Baal was depicted as a human being astride an ox. This uh, image of power and, in a sense, strength and fertility. Baal was the god of fertility. Principally in two areas. Fertility for the womb, um, so that as you prayed to Baal, your wife and your concubines would become fertile and uh, 
produce offspring. Offspring were important because they carried on the family line, the family dynasty. That was important in those days because you needed um, future generations to sustain you in your dotage and to keep hold of the land and so on. So uh, the provision of offspring, very important. And also fertility for the soil. Baal, uh, when one prayed to Baal, he produced rain to fertilize the soil. It does make me wonder whether there's been some Baal worship recently in certain parts of our land. But as the rain watered the soil, so it fertilized the seed, so the crops could grow, and if you had crops, you lived, <laughs> you ate and lived, you also had um, produce for the market and for the economy. So you, you prospered if you had offspring, if you had crops. Baal was a potent god. And, and the way it worked in their understanding was this. If I worship Baal, he will guarantee fertility, either amongst the people or amongst the land. So I will be all right. My life will prosper. In other words, as I worship Baal, I can begin to control the important areas of my life. Now, last week, um, um, the wonderful thing about being married is that you have a ready sermon critique waiting for you over Sunday lunch. And uh, one of the helpful comments that was made last week across the table was that the examples I gave of idolatry were all rather stereotypical, um, you know, of a fast car or of fancy clothes. And, uh, you know, Tim, come on, we've moved on from there. We don't fall for that so easily. And I agree that actually uh, nowadays I don't think the idols that we serve are the obvious sort of shiny things like a, a watch or a car, although they could be. It's much more subtle. Baal worship then. You say, well, we don't worship Baal. Really? I wonder how many, how many of us are prone to the idol of control, of seeking control, just as Israel then worshipped Baal because everyone else did that and because they wanted to be in control. This just out of a magazine. I want a better body. I want more energy. I want to be in control. I want to have it all. I want to be at the center of my life. I want to be able to control every constituent part of my life. And the world out there through the magazines, through the shops, through our free market economy promises, oh, you can, you can buy this, have that. Look, it's just free. And then, <laughs> and you, if you have this and buy that, and just have a little bit more than what you've got now. You will be in control. Worth-ship me or my product or my idea or my concept. Give yourself to it and you will have control. Idolatry. As we begin to trust in whatever scheme or mechanism or product it is, more than the Lord to meet our needs, to sustain us, Idolatry in the 21st century, 2007, SW6, right here, right now. Baal worship.
You see, there is so much going on in our lives. Do you remember the time, I may have mentioned this recently, I can remember when on BBC Two, one of only three terrestrial channels as I remember, before Channel Four, before Channel Five, before all the satellite stuff, BBC Two. If BBC Two didn't have anything it wanted to show you, it didn't show you anything. It put up a picture of a girl playing noughts and crosses with a Labrador, and that was it, for hours on end. Do you, do you remember that? And just help me if you, just confess your age. Hey, look at you guys. You're so kind. You're not that old. Yeah. But that, we, we, we haven't got anything we're going to push on you. No values, no product, no nothing. Just here we are. Nothing on. Go find something else to do. Can you, believe, can you imagine that happening now? So much presses in on us. People came to church in the olden days because there was nothing else to do. Now we compete. I'm so grateful that you're here. And what, what it means is I know how committed you are to be here because I know all the other things that you could be doing. A friend of mine says, you know, church is just for those people who haven't realized that the shops are open. <laughs> and how do we resist that, that pressure? Because within the pressure is you're missing out. Do you know what all the other people are doing right now? You could be this, you could be there, you could have this, you could be all of these choices. And we fear. I, I, I think I'm missing out. I think I could have more of this or that. My life would be better if... Dot, dot, dot. And so we withdraw from life and all these demands and voices, we withdraw in order to gain some kind of control. It, it's okay. I, I, I can sort this. I, I, I've, got, I've got control over that. Little obsessions. Do you mark them in your life? I do in mine. Cyclically, periodically, I, I notice I have a kind of obsessiveness to, to a sort of order or tidiness. Not in... Not consistent, just in a little area. I mean, one of my pet things, my family, if they were here, would all nod in vigorous agreement, is the stairs. In our house, the stairs can become a dump place. So my study can be a tip, and the kitchen, and everything else, but I get, I get obsessed about the stairs. If you're walking up the stairs, why can't you... Now I'm coming, that's a family thing, let's leave that, but I, I, I get obsessive. It, 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 it draws on me. That's a tiny example. There are other obsessions as a result of seeking to serve the God of control. I, uh, I just mark from the statistics more and more men who struggle with pornography. I, I don't think that's about necessarily about sex per se. Actually behind that is the desire for intimacy because of a lack of intimacy, I think, through formative years, very often. And so in, in, in the lack, in those formative years, comes the desire to control in some way. I want to be able to, to grab and to feed and to consume in a way that I think is going to satisfy me. But yet, it just leaves me lusting for more. Eating disorders. Image. Uh, on extreme ends, self-abuse. I, 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 I've been hurt in all these different areas. I'm going to withdraw, and, and I can control the pain here. I can control how I look. 
and the deception. I, I know the real pain if you are with people going through this or struggling yourself. You convince yourself that you look far more ugly than you really do or far uh, different size in body shape than you really are because the gods of this age are no less powerful than they were back then. They demean and dehumanize us. They cause us to go blind to realities. We become as sensible as a block of wood. God never offers us control of our lives. You read scripture all the way through, never ever does God offer us the ability to control our lives. Here's what he offers time and time again, always with a covenant reminder. I'm the God who brought you out of Egypt. Did you hear it in our reading? I'm the one who rescued you. I'm the one who's provided everything. This is what God offers. He offers us relationship. And in that covenant relationship where two become one, he promises to provide everything that we need. The covenant relationship is echoed in the marriage service, a covenant relationship. All that I have, I give to you. All that I am, I share with you. That's a tiny echo in the marriage service of the covenant that God makes with human beings. All that I have, I give to you. All that I am, I share with you. That's what God offers time and time again. Access through Christ, we understand now, into a relationship where he makes himself available to us and promises to meet our every need. So we're free in Christ from having to grab control for ourselves. We're free from fear that I'm missing out. His perfect love casts out fear. In our weakness in different areas, when confronted with gods that promise control, we discover through Paul in Corinthians that his strength is made perfect in my weakness. The key is in relationship with him. Seek him. Hold on to him. Hug him. Allow him to hug and hold you. And know in that embrace that his grace is sufficient for all of our needs. I can relinquish control and the grip that it has on me and my life. Baal worship, firstly. Secondly, verse 13, or verse 12, they forsook the Lord, the God of their ancestors, who brought them out of Egypt. There's the reminder. They followed and worshipped various gods of the peoples around them. They aroused the Lord's anger because they forsook him and served Baal and the Ashtoreths. The Ashtoreths, or the goddess Asherah. I've got two points. First one was Baal. The second is Ashtoreth, or Asherah. She was the goddess of war and fertility. She was a kind of consort for Baal, really. The two of them together. Uh, but Ashtoreth, she was the, uh, the Greeks worshipped her as Aphrodite, the Romans as Venus. And always the worship was quite licentious. It was overindulgent, uh, cultic prostitution and just sex <laughs> by the bucket load. Sex for our pleasure. The second God 
Ashtoreth in the time of Israel, pleasure in our day. That, that's the God that the TV soaps, the popular songs, the magazines, that's what they constantly, constantly, incessantly pour before us. Our right to pleasure. You have a right to be happy. You have a right to indulge. It's your right to feel good. That's, that's if you were to, if you had none of the, the kind of uh, Judeo-Christian background and you just went on contemporary culture, you would think that the main reason why we live, the only reason why we live is to feel good, to enjoy pleasure and to have as much of it as you can in as many ways as you can with maybe the little sort of moral caveat as long as you don't do harm to someone else. I, uh, I kind of, with a number of us, you're in the same boat. I've got little people growing up. When I was 10, 11, 12, you know, the top shelf was a long way away, and it was only on the top shelf, and only certain sections of the top shelf, where the front cover of the magazine was not particularly helpful. But I note now that at my navel height, and therefore at his eye height, are things that he can read and images that he can see going in there. Every time we go into, yeah, sure, we're going to go and buy some sweets, but he walks past. He sees. And the adverts on the telly and the adverts in the magazines, everywhere. We are being preached at about 3,000 times a day, surveys say, through the visuals, through the hoardings. Sex sells. And it's all for pleasure. And if we're not careful, because this is what all the neighbors did. The neighboring nations, they just worshipped Ashtoreth. If we're not careful, we will slide into that kind of worship as well. Indulging in sex and sex-related things for pleasure. And so we see people withdrawing again, confronted by the gods, and using sex as a kind of balm. Life just isn't working out, so I'll... Well, if I can just find someone to sleep with, then that'll soothe the hurt or the pain. The promise is it'll bring me happiness, it'll bring me pleasure, contentment. We have a discussion in the car as to what radio station we'll listen to. Um, Sometimes my preference is for Radio 4, which my children cannot understand. Um, their preference is for KISS FM. Have you ever listened to KISS FM? Uh, it, its main diet is rap music. I personally think that most rap music is a misspelling, the consonant off the front. <laughs> but every now and then I'll pay attention to the lyric. What's, what, what I find fascinating, I have to sort of listen hard. I'm getting so old, I realize I have to sort of listen hard. It's so quick, it's so fast, it's so incessant. But what's interesting is my kids, they hear every single word. I, 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 I sort of think, was that something rude then as I'm driving along? And I just look, I just look, and I can tell all three are sniggering. I think they heard it. And it's more sophisticated than that. Actually, it's Baal and Ashtoreth together. It's, it's I can control you through sex. If you listen to a lot of the, the lyrics, it's, I, you know, I like what you do for me. Do more of this for me. 
it's control and sex together. Twin gods, Baal and Ashtoreth, right there on my radio station in the car until I press the dial, the radio four. We can kind of, you know, we can laugh on one level, but on another level, you know, this is serious. It's, it's, they're being preached at. We're being preached at. What does the Bible say about love? The Bible says that love is commitment, love is sacrifice, love is service. Love is something that I look to give, not look to get. And the byproduct of looking to give, ultimately the whole of my life to God in love, is that he in return promises pleasure, satisfaction, contentment, fullness, shalom, peace. Look at the consequence of idolatry. Verse 14. God is a jealous God. He will not brook a rival. In his anger against Israel, verse 14, the Lord gave them into the hands of the raiders who plundered them. He sold them into the hands of their enemies all around whom they were no longer able to resist. Doesn't this speak straight into our culture today? I want you to note something. Um, This repentance that went on at the start of chapter 2 Verse 4, the angel of the Lord has spoken these things to the Israelites. The people wept aloud. They called that place Bokim, which means tears, I think, or weeping. Uh, And there they offered sacrifices to the Lord. And after Joshua dismissed the Israelites, they went to take possession of the land, each to their own inheritance. So simple. What did they do? They just went from there, and they took possession of the land that the God had promised. Do you think there were tribes in there? Yeah, was there opposition? There there might have been. There would have been. But the Lord just wasn't having it. If, if he's got a people who will worship him, no foreign people, no, foreign, no one who stands against God will, will resist. It's just, you, you just take the land. It's just so matter of fact. I love it. You'll just live according to God's promises. You, you will just know the power and the effectiveness, the incision, the reality of living with God and for God. They just went and took possession of the land. But look what happens when they succumb to idols. Look what happens when control and pleasure infect them. Raiders, verse 14, plunder them. These very same peoples who they've just walked into their land and moved to one side. We could talk about the morality of that. This is Old Testament timescales, and and I understand our sensitivities are, are differently gauged now. The point I'm trying to make is this. When, when we are in step with the Lord, it just happens. What gods? What gods? What idols? <laughs> when I'm worshipping and living for the one true living God. But if I take my eye off the one true living God, and there's Baal, and there's Asherah, well, suddenly I'm invaded. Suddenly I'm raided. Suddenly my life and my lifestyle is plundered. And I am unable to resist. The misery. I mean, how many couples have I counseled where uh, just the misery and the regret of the kind of baggage from seeking pleasure in the wrong way and in the wrong place at the wrong time and out of context. It works through. Lives plundered and robbed. One individual brings that with another individual together. And as they seek, out to work, uh, seek to work out a marriage of two becoming one, there's stuff 
to sort through where the enemy has come in and plundered and robbed. Haven't got time. I must stop just to look at the impact of idolatry on the Israelites in Exodus. Perhaps Exodus 32. A little bit of homework. Intriguing this. See how Aaron and Joshua, the leaders of Israel, were blinded and confused about the golden calf. Exodus 32. Aaron confuses it for worship to the Lord. What? A golden calf? But it's there in Scripture. Joshua confuses the revelry for a battle. How can you confuse a battle with a party? But he did. The the, the guy ordained to be leader of the people of Israel. Who's the one guy who sees it for what it is? Moses. Where's he? He's in the presence of the Lord. Exodus 32. It's held up as an example in 1 Corinthians 10. Paul quotes from that to the Corinthian church. says, look, be careful of these idols because they, they confuse you. They blind you. They rob you. They raid you. They plunder you. Paul in Romans, these are well-known verses as he concludes his argument or comes into land on his argument to uh, Gentile and Jew. And with this I finish. Paul's words to us today, beset as we are by idols, but with the promise of reality and truth and solid real life in God through Jesus Christ. Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing and perfect will. Impotent, unsure, uncertain, fearful. Want to know God's will? His good, pleasing and perfect will that you can approve in your life. Then we offer ourselves as living sacrifices. A moment of quiet. Going to sing our final hymn in just a few minutes. But as the Lord, through his word, speaks truth and reveals truth, let's allow that truth, rather like an acid, to burn away at confusion, to burn away at uh, things that are encrusted on our lives, our hearts, our minds. The spirit of truth, like a light, to shine where perhaps there's just been apathy or ignorance. The worship of Baal. Obsessive control. The worship of Ashtoreth. Pleasure. Where have those gods surfaced in your life recently? Where have they held out their alluring promise? I don't know whether it helps as an act of worship even now to imagine yourself with a great big sledgehammer. Imagine this, a, a sort of statue of Baal or a statue of 
Ashtoreth. You might want to write on the statue how Baal or Ashtoreth have manifested themselves to you in this day and age, in your life. I might picture my stairs in the house. Now ask the Lord for the strength to pick up the hammer and swing it and smash that idol. And all its influence and all its power, the space that it takes up so that into that space now cleared and smashed, God the Father who provides through Christ, his Son who sacrificed, and in the power and the truth and the reality and the beauty of his Spirit to come and fill the place where the idol stood. Oh God, we say to you that we are a land riddled with idols and we seek to be a people marked out as different. We seek to be a people so full of your spirit that the idols will be shown up for what they are, impotent, futile, worthless. Lord, we pray that our lives might be so attractive as we live them for you, living sacrifices, approving your perfect and pleasing will that others would be drawn by our example, to worship you and you alone. As we go from here, empower us to that end. For Jesus' sake, amen.